All right, Philippians chapter one, uh, and we're going to be this morning in verses one and two. And I know that we've been in verses one and two for the last two weeks. And by the Lord's help today, we're going to finish verses one and two uh, this morning. And so let's, let's read them today. It's uh, Philippians chapter one. It says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, without your word, we would be in darkness. Without your word, we wouldn't know what to do, how to live, which way to go, how, how to think. Lord, without your word, we would be so lost. But Lord, because of your word, we are not in darkness, we are in light. Because of your word, we, we do know what to do, we do know how to think. Because of your word, we are not lost, but we are found. Lord, because of your word, we have a, a, a weapon with which to battle against the forces of darkness in our world. Your word is the sword of the spirit. Lord, as we spend time in your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, get me out of the way so that you can, can speak to your people that have gathered here to meet with you today. We want to hear from you. We want, we want your work of redemption, your work of sanctification to, to grow, to, to increase, that, that our prayer would be like John the Baptist, that you would increase and that we would decrease. We, we want to see you, your life grow in our lives. And so that's our prayer, Lord, as we come to your word. Lord, we're so thankful that as the grass may wither and as the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. That's the great truth that we hold on to as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so from this text, I've got four main ideas or four headings that I want to highlight today. And again, as I said, Lord willing, uh, we will finish. The, the first is that who is this letter addressed to? So the, in the first week, we looked at who wrote the letter, the Apostle Paul. We looked at his transformation. We looked at how God had called him out of darkness and into light, how God had changed this man who at once was an enemy of Christ. But Jesus called him and changed him and turned him into an apostle of Christ, an enemy of the church to an apostle of the church. The second week, we looked at who these saints were in Philippi and, and how this church was started and planted by the apostle Paul. We also looked at how while Paul and Silas were there in Philippi ministering, how they, they miraculously set free a, a woman from, from demon oppression. She was filled with a the, the demon spirit, even demon possession. And that for doing that, they were thrown in jail and beaten. But what we saw was that it was the will of the Lord that put them there. It wasn't Satan that put them in the jail. It was God that put them in the jail because God was working to save the jailer. That God always has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose than what we see right in front of us right here and now. And for those of us living in 2021, that's good news. Amen? Amen. That there's something bigger going on. That, that God is working and that God is moving in, in ways and in, in things that we don't see. Thank God there's more going on than what we can see in front of us right now. Amen. That's the great truth that we hold on to. And 
We saw that last week as the Philippian jailer was saved. Not only him, but his whole household was saved and that they were baptized and added to the church. And so as we continue on this morning, I want to first start by, by looking at, again, who this letter was written to. Paul says he's writing this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. This word saints, you know, because we live in, in San Antonio and because of the, the very rich Roman Catholic heritage here in San Antonio, when we hear the word saints, we probably think of these special sort of higher order believers that are, are they're not like us, right? Not these ordinary Christians, but saints are sort of these venerated, uh, put on a pedestal, super awesome, amazing Christians and, and that the church christens or appoints sainthood upon certain believers. And so we think of people like St. John and St. Philip and St. Matthew. And that's kind of what we think of when we hear the word saints. But that's not the, what the Bible is meaning when it uses the word saints. He, he's not just writing to the, the special Christians. He's not just writing to to, to, to some sort of higher class of, of believers, the word saint simply means holy ones, holy ones. And so Paul is writing to the holy ones in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now in the month of August, we, we really took several weeks to examine and to look at and to, to understand what it means about what it means that God is holy. We spent several weeks, really almost the whole month of August, looking at the holiness of God and, and how that affects the way that we live as God's people. And so from that, I'll remind you that the word holy, it means separate. It means other. It means in a class all by itself. It, it means a cut above. And especially when it comes to God, it means that God is transcendent, that he is high and exalted, that he is so far and above all of us. It's talking about God's supremacy, his, his absolute greatness, his, his preeminence above and in all things. But we also learned that God also makes things holy. He makes things holy. What God touches, he makes holy. Now, not in the same way that God is holy, but in, in the sense that God touches something, when God interacts with it, he, he separates it from the world and sets it apart for a divine and holy purpose. And so the best way to see this and understand this is, of course, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he tells Moses, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Well, was it special dirt? No. But what made it special was that God was there. That's what made it holy. So what God touches, he makes holy. He separates it apart for a special use. And so what is it that makes these people in Philippi, what is it that makes them saints? What is it that makes them holy? It's the fact that they are, as Paul says, that they are in Christ Jesus. 
They are in Christ Jesus. And, and this is why he can call them saints. This is why he can call them holy ones. And this is why you and I who believe in Christ today, we too are saints. We too are holy ones. We have been called out of the world, called out of darkness, separated from the world for a unique, unique and divine purpose to serve God. Amen. You remember in our series on the church, the, 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 the word for the church, the, the, the gathering, the ecclesia, is a people that have been called out, called out from the world. So we gather as God's holy people. We gather as the saints of God. Just as the Philippians were made holy through their union with Christ, so you and I are made holy through our union with Jesus. Separated from the world, set apart for service unto our God. I love the way the, the English Standard Version renders this text because it says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. They're in Christ while they're at Philippi. What, what this is communicating is that their primary identity and allegiance is to Christ, is to Christ. While they may be at Philippi, they are in Christ. While you and I may be at San Antonio, we are in Jesus Christ. While we may be at Texas, we are in Jesus Christ. While we may be citizens of the United States, we're also citizens of a much higher kingdom, the kingdom of God. Amen. And so whatever earthly allegiance that we have here and now, which is good and is appropriate if it's kept in its proper place, we have a higher allegiance to the kingdom of God. We have a higher allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. So while they are at Philippi, they are in Christ, and this is why they are holy. And this is why we are holy. We are not part of the world anymore. We're not part of the world anymore. In the Old Testament, the Bible, uh, God speaking to his, his people, the children of Israel, he tells them, come out from the world and be ye separate. Come, come out from among them. S separate yourself from the world. Now, of course, we live here and now. Of course, we go to work. Of course, we interact with our family. Of, of course, we are still here, but we're not part of the same system. We're not part of the same mindset. We don't share the same values, the, the same worldview, the same way of thinking. And then many times we don't even share the same culture. At least we shouldn't. Amen. And, and as the, the, the world we live in, as our culture here in the United States, as it trends towards ungodliness and unrighteousness more and more, there should exist an even greater gulf, an even greater chasm, an even greater separation from the way true believers live their lives and the way the rest of the world lives their lives. Amen. Because we are saints, because we are our holy ones. When God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, that was the easy part. 
The easy part was getting the people out of Egypt. It only took 10 plagues, a death angel, parting the Red Sea. That was easy. It, it only took a few months to do that. But what took 40 years was getting Egypt out of God's people. Amen. And so for you and I who are now called out of the world, we've, we've passed through the waters of, of baptism like they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. The, the old life, the old ways have, have closed in behind us. There's no going back. But now the great challenge is, is as we wait and await to enter into that promised land, the kingdom of God forever and ever that God has for us, the great challenge now is for the next X amount of years that we have on this earth to get the world out of us. Amen. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. But it starts with us realizing, understanding, hey, I'm a saint. I'm a holy one. God, God has called me out of the world. I'm not part of the world anymore. It starts with renewing your mind on this truth. And the Word of God that we're studying here today as we go through the book of Philippians, the Word of God was written for the people of God. Paul writing to the saints. And this, so, so as we study this book of Philippians, it's, it's not just for the Philippians, it's also for you. Amen. It's also for, for me, it's, it's, it's for us. The Word of God is for the people of God. Timothy puts it this way, or Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's a compound word in the Greek, theanoustos, God breathed. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching. I need to learn about God. I need to learn his ways. I need to be taught about, about his thoughts and, and his ideas and the way that he sees the world, profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for reproof. How many of you have ever been reproofed? Have had someone reproof you? Sometimes we need some reproofing in our lives. Profitable for correction. How many of you have ever been corrected? These are not always enjoyable experiences, experiences, are they? But they're necessary. They're, they're part of that process of, of getting the world out of us. Pro profitable so that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. We need equipping so that we may work for God in the world today. But notice it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And all Scripture is profitable for the people of God to be taught, to be reproved, to be corrected, to be trained in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. That's the end game, completion, perfection, sanctification, and then glorification and equipped for every good work. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, No prophecy, again, speaking of the, the Scriptures specifically is what he's talking about here. 
No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we read this passage today, as we go through the book of Philippians, we have to to always come to Scripture with this idea. These aren't the words of men. These are the words of God. These aren't the words of Paul. Though God used Paul to write his words for us, they are God's words. And so they carry within themselves a unique power, a unique authority that no other words have that kind of power and authority. Now, our words do have a power, not as much as we would like. But God's word has the ultimate power, the ultimate authority. When God speaks on an issue, the issue is settled. There's no more debate. There's no more, well, what about this or what about that? To the issues on which God has spoken, those issues are are settled. Those cases are closed. Amen. They do not need to be reopened. They do not need to be reexamined. To do so is to question God himself. And so as we move through Philippians, I want to remind you that this is more than a letter written by Paul. This is Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for God's holy people. And that's you and me. Amen? So as we move on from this passage to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. This is the second thing I want to highlight for you this morning. This is the only letter that Paul writes. Of all the letters that he does write, this is the only one that he addresses not only to the church, to the saints, but he also includes both the overseers and the deacons. And what this communicates to us about the church at Philippi is that this was not a baby congregation, but this was a mature congregation. They have an active and functional leadership. At the time that Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison in Rome. It's been between 10 and 15 years since Paul planted this church in Philippi. And in that time frame, leaders have been raised up. They've been trained. They've been instructed in the Word of God. They've been set in place as overseers in that church body. And also another group of leaders has come come alongside of them, these deacons, these, these servants. And so here we see that there is stability in this church. There's continuity in this church. There's a a certain degree of trust that exists between the believers and the overseers and the deacons. Now in our context here at, at Destiny, We use a little bit different terminology than overseer. We use the word elder or pastor to describe the overseers here at Destiny Church. The reason we use that terminology of elder and pastor is that's a a terminology that's more familiar to us. But when the New Testament writers write, they, they use these terms interchangeably overseer, elder, pastor, all of these terms are are used interchangeably. And we see the 
instructions or the, the criteria in 1 Timothy chapter 3 of what it is that, that qualifies an elder to serve in that capacity and what it is that qualifies a deacon to serve in that capacity. And so we're not going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. I would encourage you to continue uh, to read that and to study that as it is beneficial for you. But in the life of a church, the elders, their job is to shepherd the flock, to care for God's people, to care for the church, and to do so primarily through teaching and preaching and instructing in the Word of God and through prayer. We see this in the book of Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts chapter 6, there's a, a little bit of a dilemma that happens. There's a group of people in the church that are, are not being taken care of. Their physical needs are not being met. And so a complaint comes to the apostles and the apostles say, look, you need to appoint for your, yourselves some deacons. You need to appoint for yourselves some, some servants who can, who can lead in this ministry. But we will give ourselves to the teaching and preaching of the word of God and to prayer. And the deacons will carry out these practical ministries within the life of the church. And so the, the, the job of the overseer, the job of the elder, is, is to be someone that is skilled in the word of God, who knows how to teach and instruct people in the, the scriptures. And so the elders, I'm typically the, 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 the one that speaks the most on behalf of the elders. I'm tasked with that job of teaching and preaching on Sunday mornings. But if you meet with one of our elders, they will teach and instruct you in the Word of God. If you come and meet with me personally for, for counseling, which I don't recommend you do, um, <laughs> because I only have two questions for you when I meet with people who I'm counseling. First question is, what does God's Word say about this? The second question is, why are we still talking? <laughs> so I, I would advise you to meet with our elder elders who are, are more, you know, have a little bit more of a shepherding aspect to their, their ministry. Nevertheless, the job of the elder that we see in 1 Timothy 3 that, that doesn't uh, share with the deacons is that they are to be skilled in, in, in instruction of the Word of God, that they know the Word of God. You do not want people leading the church who don't know what the Word of God says, or even worse, who don't care what the Word of God say, says. The deacons, their job, that, that word deacon is a Greek word that literally means servant. Their job is to assist the elders in caring for God's people, to, to serve alongside the elders and, and, and to really come alongside and, and to, to make sure that the, the congregation is being cared for. Now, as you know, we've been going through an, a, a process of updating our church membership here at the church. And We've been strengthening, especially our deacons ministry, adding on several deacons a few months ago. And this week, uh, the members of the church who have gone through that, that process of, of filling out those forms and submitting them to us, those who are already members of the church, you should have received this week an email 
Uh, and it might have, some, some of the emails even went out last night, so if you haven't received it, it may have gone out last night. If you haven't received it, chunk, check your junk mail. It's not junk. Um, but you should have received an email from the church this week letting you know who your deacon is and who your elder is. And that you, we will be calling on you, the, the deacons will be calling on you to check on you, to see how you're doing, to pray with you, to serve you. And so uh, if you're a member of the church who has submitted that, that, that packet and you didn't receive an email, please come and let us know. Uh, we, we processed something like 202 members over the last few weeks. And we have still yet to, to go through that process. About 33 people who have submitted to that process but are not yet members of the church. And so if you turned in one of those packets, but you're not yet, you weren't already a member of the church, we'll still, we're still working with you to go through that process. And so pretty soon here, as we move throughout September and throughout October, uh, at some point soon, we should be uh, welcoming at least 33 new people into our church family as members. So that's exciting. So that's just a little bit of an update on, on that process and, and where uh, we are in that process. And so that is, we see here, it's very biblical for a church to have overseers and deacons, elders and deacons, pastors and deacons, along with the saints. And so that's the second thing I wanted to highlight today. The, the third is... Moving on now into verse 2. Hey, we finished verse 1, okay? <laughs> Only took three and a half weeks. We made it. I want to move into verse 2 today, which says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to zero in for a moment on this key phrase, grace and peace. Grace and peace. This phrase Paul uses a lot of times as we read through the, the New Testament letters, we, we kind of just skim past the introduction and, 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 and we kind of jump through it quickly, not really pausing to think, pausing to reflect, pausing to meditate on it. We're going to meditate on grace and peace here for a moment because Paul begins every single one of his letters with this phrase, grace and peace to you and peace. He begins Romans that way, 1st and 2nd Corinthians that way, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Every single letter that the Apostle Paul writes, he begins by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that the most often, one of the most often repeated phrases in all of the New Testament is one of the ones that we skip past the most, that we spend the less time on thinking and, and meditating. What, what do these words mean that Paul keeps repeating over and over and over again? And why are they at the beginning? And what does it mean that they're at the beginning of these letters that he writes? So first, let's look at this word grace. It's the, the Hebrew, not the Hebrew, the Greek word charis, charis. 
And it means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. That's what grace is. Now to contrast that with mercy, mercy which we have also received from God, Mercy is a wonderful thing. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. That's mercy. Mercy is when I'm running late to a meeting and I fly down Callahan Road going 60 miles an hour in my 2006 Toyota minivan with 200,000 miles on it. When I, and the police officer pulls me over. And he pulls me over into the church parking lot. <laughs> and I unfortunately kind of have a bad attitude towards the police officer. And he has to reprove me when I had a bad attitude, but then I tell him, oh, I'm the pastor here. He reproves me and says, as the pastor, you ought to be supporting what we're doing. <laughs> yes, you're right. I repent forgive me. Mercy is when he gives me a warning and not a ticket. That is mercy. Mercy is a good thing. Here's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's grace. Grace would be when the police officer opens up his billfold and says, here's a hundred dollars, take your wife out to dinner. That's grace. Mercy is wonderful, but grace is even better. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you also don't deserve. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Mercy is getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes words is hard, okay? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, not getting the ticket. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Him giving me $100, which has never happened, by the way, never happened. <laughs> While I've never received grace being pulled over from a parking ticket, I have received grace from God. You see, what we deserve from God is wrath. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us through our sin, we have rebelled against a righteous and holy God. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's judgment. God would be perfectly holy. You, have, you do not understand grace. You do not understand it until you understand the fact that God would be perfectly holy, perfectly just, to send every human being who's ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, straight to hell. He would be perfectly just to do that. And none of us could stand before him and say, you are being unjust. We deserve God's wrath because of sin. And in fact, the Bible says that God's wrath, Romans chapter 1, is being poured out on the unbelieving world because of sin. This is what we do deserve. But we receive mercy. 
Not only do we receive mercy, it goes beyond mercy to receiving grace because instead of God pouring his wrath out upon us, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, his son. That Jesus took our place on the cross. That Jesus was our substitution. He, he was that spotless lamb. Though Jesus had never sinned, though Jesus had never lied, though Jesus had never cheated, though Jesus had ever looked on a woman with a lustful thought in his heart, though Jesus had never talked back to his parents, though Jesus had never disrespected authority, Jesus lived and kept God's righteous and holy law perfectly. He did not deserve the cross, but he went to the cross willingly in the place of not his friends, but his enemies. Because we were enemies of God through sin and rebellion. God, having poured out his wrath upon Jesus, he gives us what Jesus earned. We get from God what we don't deserve. So the life that Jesus lived, a life of perfect submission unto God, he exchanges it for our life of sin and shame and death. He places our sin on Jesus on the cross and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Getting what we don't deserve. Now through the free gift of grace, it's free. Free. Offered freely to whoever would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ on the cross. Would trust not in their own goodness, not in their own works of righteousness, but would trust in the work that Jesus performed on our behalf as he bled and died for sinners. Now through this free gift of grace, he offers salvation, redemption, healing, restoration, forgiveness, sanctification, justification, glorification. He offers us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In fact, the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. That every morning you wake up and guess what there's more of? It's the grace of God. It's without limit. It's without measure. He pours it out upon his people that we can't even begin to understand and fathom. Every moment of our lives is the grace of God manifest in and through us. Grace. If you're going to understand anything else in the rest of Philippians, if we ever eventually get to verse 3, you have to first understand grace. Because none of this is possible in the rest of this book without the grace of God. It's not possible without the grace of God. We're still dead in our trespasses and sins without the grace of God. We're, we're still enemies of God. We're still in rebellion against God. But because of the grace of God, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in Christ we would become the righteousness of God. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith, trusting in Him. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our good deeds. Our best deeds need saving. Our best deeds need salvation. Our righteousness 
in the face of a holy God is as filthy rags. But not only does he give us grace, he also gives us peace. Not just one, but both. But let me tell you something. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have peace, true and lasting peace, unless you first have received grace. There is no true and lasting peace apart from the grace of God. This word peace is the Greek word irene, which literally means to join together, to set at one again. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which carries with it the, the, the idea of completeness. It's the opposite of conflict. It's the opposite of fighting. It's the opposite of, of hostility. The Bible tells us that, that we were in conflict with God because of our sin. We were hostile. All of humanity that's in sin and not in Christ is hostile towards God. We see this playing out so clearly everywhere. In, in, just to get political here to offense everybody today, but th th this last couple weeks, you know, Texas passed this ban on abortion. Praise be to Jesus, right? I pray to God, pray to God that, that it's upheld. But what do we see? We, we see a world that is hostile against God. As soon as someone takes a stand for holiness and, and righteousness and the word of God says that people are created in the image of God and that life begins at conception. And so what is in the womb is, is not a, a, a clump of cells, but is a, 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 a human being created in the, in the likeness and the image of God therefore worthy of protection, therefore bestowed with dignity, value, and worth, not by a legislature, but by God himself, is, is worth protecting in the womb. When that comes down, you, you have a hostile world that is ready and willing to fight to see that overturned. Why? The world is hostile towards God. And it manifests in all of these different ways. That's just one way that it's being manifest right now. Hostile towards God. It's this idea. There's, there's not peace. You know, uh, the Bible says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Light and darkness don't get together and have a picnic. Right? There, there's not a, they're not good friends. When, when the light shows up, the darkness has to flee. There's no peace between light and darkness. There, there's, there's conflict there's division, there's separation, there's, there's tearing apart, and, and there's ultimately destruction where there is no peace. But there's this, also this connotation about the word peace that not only has the, the idea of bringing two things together, to join together, to set at one again of completeness, but there's also this idea of quietness, of rest, of even prosperity and welfare because when the two warring parties have reconciled there can finally be prosperity you can finally rebuild when there's just conflict when there's just war it's just destruction 
But when there's peace, when the two parties that have been separated have been made one again, you can build again. There can be prosperity. There can be God's blessing that flows. Now, this idea as it comes to us is we have peace with God. The two warring parties have been reconciled. Why? Well, see the word prior, because of grace. Because God has shown us in Christ unmerited favor. Because in Christ, God has given us what we do not deserve. Because in Christ, God has mended the separation that existed between us and God. A separation that he did not create, but that we created through sin and rebellion. But through the cross of Christ, that separation has been reconciled. And and so God comes from heaven to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God adding to his divine nature, human nature. So in his divinity, he's touching the Father. In his humanity, he's touching us. And and in his flesh, the Bible says that, that Jesus reconciles us to God, that there's peace, that the two parties that were separated, not because of God, but because of us, Jesus stands in the middle reconciling us back to the Father. And so even on the cross, the cross is the ultimate picture of this because it's Jesus is there bleeding, Jesus is there dying. He's lifted up on the cross, suspended between two worlds, touching divinity, touching the Father, yet not quite touching earth, yet reaching out and touching humanity, bringing us back into right relationship with the Father. This is why Jesus says there's no way to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one else has lived a sinless life. No one else has died the atoning death. No one else has has risen victoriously. No one else has ascended in glory. No one else is coming back to judge the living and the dead. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. And because of that, we have peace with God. True and lasting peace only comes from being in Christ. This is why Jesus, in, in the, 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 the Gospels, we, we read the story of how Jesus is on the boat, how they're in the midst of a storm, how the disciples are freaking out. And Jesus is asleep in the middle of the boat. He's taking a nap. They wake up. Don't you care that we're sinking? Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus says, peace, be still. He speaks to the wind and the waves. He speaks peace to the storm. You see, in the midst of the storm, Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, he is at peace. And then he wakes up and he releases his peace upon the storm. And this is why you and I, even in the midst of the storms of life, we can have an inner and lasting peace that the enemy cannot rob from us because we have been reconciled to God. Amen. This is why Paul and Silas, stripped naked, beaten, thrown into prison, they're at peace. Even in the midst of the storm, even in the midst of hardship, even when things don't go the way we want, because we have received grace, because we are in Christ, we have peace. Inner, true, and lasting peace. Inner, true, and lasting 
joining together with the Father, being reconciled, no longer at war, no longer in conflict, no no longer there being separation, but now there's this quiet rest in our souls as we have peace with God. Because we know that those who Christ redeems, he also protects. Amen. Amen? He also watches over. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Those whom Christ redeems, he upholds by his power. Those whom Christ redeems, he restores. Those whom Christ redeems, he blesses. Those whom Christ redeems, he heals. Those whom Christ redeems, he delivers. Those whom Christ redeems, he forgives. And when that last moment of our lives come, when we take our last breath in this life, those who Christ has redeemed, he comes and he takes us to himself so that we may be where he is. The Bible says in John 14 that he is even right now preparing a place for us and that he will come again and take us to himself. This gives us true and lasting peace in the midst of every storm. I'm going to take a few more minutes here to finish up verse 2 so we don't have to start here again next week. Where does this grace and peace come from? Where can I find it? Can I buy it? Can I buy it? Can I, can I receive grace and peace from the accumulation of possessions? Can I receive grace and peace through the accumulation of wealth? That's what our world thinks, doesn't it? That through the accumulation of possessions, through the accumulation of wealth, others through the accumulation of power, power hungry. No, I'm sorry, but that's not where you find grace and peace. He tells us, verse 2, grace and peace from There's only one place, only one source. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is now the third time in these two verses that Paul has used the word Christ to talk about Jesus. In fact, it is the most used word in the book of Philippians Paul uses Christ 37 times in these four chapters. What's the theme of Corinthians? Christ. I'm not the Corinthians, well, the Corinthians too, but also Philippians. The theme of Philippians is, is Christ. Christ is the Greek word Christos. It's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one, the one that God sent, the one that God anointed the one that God's people were waiting for, the deliverer. The word Jesus means Yahweh saves, God saves. But here, now the third time Paul uses this word, these two words, in in verse one, it was Christ Jesus, twice, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. Here he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus Messiah, not only is Jesus the anointed one, not only is Jesus our Savior, Jesus is also the Lord. Jesus is also the Lord. In the first century, the the great refrain, the, the great saying 
that, that had to be repeated throughout the Roman Empire was that Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is Lord. But very early on, the very first Christian creed became not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And what this means for those in Philippi, it means that there's a throne above Caesar's throne. It means that Jesus is, is, is the Lord above Caesar. That there's a, a king above every king. That there's a Lord above every Lord. For us here today, it means there's a court that's higher than the Supreme Court. It means that there's an office higher than the Oval Office. And who is it that occupies this court? Who is it that occupies this throne? Who is it that occupies this office? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the name above every name. He is the ruler over every ruler. Amen. And you will only find grace and peace from Him. And until, I will even say this, until you submit your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, you will not have lasting peace. If you're trying to do this thing that the Bible knows nothing about, but a lot of people in our culture think is possible, of accepting Jesus as Savior, but not following Him as Lord, you will not have lasting peace peace. And the truth is, I believe that you can't even accept Jesus as Savior unless you accept Him as Lord. He is one and the same. He cannot be divided into multiple parts. He is Savior and He is Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? The state is not Lord. The government is not Lord. Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. His final words before he flew into heaven was all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Paul begins this letter by calling himself a slave. Paul sits down as he writes this letter, a prisoner in Rome, a prisoner for preaching the gospel. He's been a prisoner for four years, passed from jail to jail to jail till he finally made it to jail in Rome. But I want you to know that while Paul is a prisoner in Rome, he is not a slave of Rome. He is not a slave of any other person or any other institution than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is his master. Jesus is his Lord. And as he sits down to write his letter, he has only positive things to say about Jesus as Lord. And for us who are also slaves of Christ, we must remember that it is the supreme blessing to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Because he has redeemed us. He has purchased us back. We are now his we are under his protection. We are under his leadership. We are under his guidance. We are in his care. We are under his blessing. You're either a slave of the world and a slave of Satan, or you're a slave of Jesus Christ. And to be a slave of Jesus is the highest blessing of all. To be able to serve Jesus is the highest blessing. <laughs> 